0: Tonight, straight from the
1: source, she became the face of abortion rights in a deep red state with a searing personal story that may have helped sweep its Democratic governor to victory. And she's here tonight. Plus, the FBI seizing the phones and an iPad of the mayor of New York City, marking a significant escalation of a corruption investigation. Eric Adams saying tonight that he has, quote, nothing to hide. And after resigning from office nearly 20 years ago over a sex scandal with a male staffer, the former New Jersey governor, Jim McGreevy wants back into politics. He's here to make his case for a second chance. I'm Kaylin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, Democrats are seizing on a galvanizing force in politics, one that led them to a string of victories on election night, even in the unlikeliest of circumstances in pretty red states, ruby red states, actually. By making abortion access the center of their campaigns and their campaign ads, Democrats are now moving to get more abortion rights measures on ballots next year, in 2024. They've already notched now seven consecutive wins, since the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Candidates who put it at the center of their campaigns aren't just winning in blue or purple states, but also those that are deeply red. Abortion could very well be the defining issue again in 2024, we already see President Biden campaigning on it. And you can see how Democrats are prioritizing it by how they're spending on it. Since the beginning of just this year, Democrats have spent more than $74 million on ads about abortion. Compare that to the $16 million that Republicans have spent. The contrast is even starker when you look at a state like Kentucky, where you saw and heard from the Democratic governor, Andy Beshear, on the show this week. He won re-election there, and that is where Democrats spent $1.3 million on ads this fall. Republicans, when it came to abortion, spent nothing. Kentucky has a near total ban on abortion. And it was this searing ad that many people believed helped Governor Beshear beat his Republican opponent. And it featured 21-year-old Hadley Duvall.
2: I was raped by my stepfather after years of sexual abuse. I was 12. Anyone who believes there should be no exceptions for rape and incest could never understand what it's like to stand in my shoes. This is to you, Daniel Cameron. To tell a 12-year-old girl she must have the baby of her stepfather who raped her is unthinkable
1: you can see why it was one of the most powerful ads of this election cycle. Governor Bashir is also hoping it'll help resonate past Election Day.
0: Hadley is one of the most courageous young women I've ever met. In Kentucky, we have the most extreme uh, ban in, in America, where, where you know, that 13-year-old, raped and impregnated by her stepfather would have no options. It's about basic empathy for somebody who who has been violated. And I certainly hope our legislature will pass those exceptions as soon as they come back.
1: And Hadley Duvall is here with me tonight. Hadley, uh, I'm so happy that you're here. And thank you so much for just being willing to come on and tell your story. I wanna talk about that powerful ad in a moment. But first, I'd like to go back to the beginning. When you first told your story publicly in a post on Facebook, what was it that made you do that?
2: Um, The overturn of Roe v. Wade had a lot of people speaking out on social media in agreements, And it just really got to me because it was people that knew me personally, but didn't know that part of my story. So I just wanted them to know that I see their posts, other people see their posts, and it's not always black and white. Kind of the message that you wanted to send were were
1: people who, you know, even if they were pro-life and they thought that was something to celebrate, you thought maybe they weren't thinking of, of circumstances like the one that you were in when you were just 12 years old. Exactly. What was the reaction to that post like?
2: Um, it went pretty viral. A lot of people were sharing it. People were telling me that they've never looked at it that way, that they had no idea that that kind of stuff could happen right there in their town. And it really, it got a lot of conversations started.
1: Were you nervous when you first had kind of typed that message out to actually post it and share it with, with everyone you knew?
2: Yeah, I was really nervous. I knew I was putting myself out there to be judged and to be vulnerable, but I just felt like it was something that I had to do.
1: So after you heard from the governor's office asking if you would be interested in telling that story in an ad for his campaign, how long did it take you before you said yes?
2: Um, I said yes the day that I got the phone call. They told me that they wanted me to be a part of an ad and what I was going to be talking about. And I said, absolutely, I will. What kind of impact do you think it had on this race? I think it opened a lot of people's eyes. I think putting my face out there with the words, not just like making it something that you just hear about, like I'm a real person. Uh, People started looking me up. People have been messaging me, talking about me um, to their therapists and everything. And I feel like that has really made a difference.
1: What do you mean to their their therapists? Have you heard from people who, who just, they were telling you how much your story resonated with them?
2: Yeah, I had some therapists reach out to me and just say that my name's being brought up in different sessions with different people around the, not even just Kentucky, but in Indiana and Ohio and all of the surrounding states.
1: And of course, you know, Some of those were Ohio's a state where voters went and voted to make sure that they had the right to an abortion this week. I imagine you've probably also heard from people who had similar experiences to yours.
2: Yes, I've heard a lot of people come to me and say, you know, thank you for saying the words that I could probably never say. And I've had other people tell me that I'm the reason that they've been able to find their voice and find their strength. And that itself means so much to me.
1: Hadley, that's amazing. I mean, to hear from, from other people who went through something as dark as that and to know that, that you were an inspiration for them and that you kind of gave them the freedom to also tell their story. Yeah. Is it hard for you to talk about?
2: Um, it's not easy, but talking about the healing is very healing for me. And knowing that there is a little girl out there somewhere that looks up to me and, you know, I'm probably helping her push through just knowing that just because something happens to you, it doesn't mean that we stop there. We just got to keep going. And that means so much to me, knowing that there are little girls out there that look up to me and it makes it worth it.
1: It's one thing to, to share it in a written post, and it's a whole nother thing to do it on camera in the powerful way that you did you know when you look back at that ad and see the impact did you ever think it would it would have that much of an impact on the race
2: no i knew it was going to be a big deal but i didn't think that it was going to get as big as it did
1: yeah it's just national attention and i think what's important for people to remember as they watched this race is your, your home state has a near total ban on abortion there's one exception. It's if the life of the mother is at risk or her, her health is. There's no exceptions for rape, for incest. And I know, you know, Governor Bashir has made that part of his campaign. He wants to change that. But as you know, Hadley, he's dealing with a Republican supermajority in the state legislature. And it's a, it's a big, big climb. It's an uphill climb. If you could speak to those lawmakers, though, who are in Frankfurt and have this power to change this if they wanted to, what would you say to them?
2: Um, I would just ask them to look at their daughters, their granddaughters, their nieces, any woman or a little girl who's significant in their life and just think that it was me at one point and it can be somebody else the next day and it's still happening, it's very real and I just, Want them to be able to take that into consideration that abortion is not black and white. There are many gray areas in it, and those gray areas should be taken into consideration no matter how small they say the the statistic is, Mm -hmm. because a lot of the times it's not even reported correctly, so those numbers aren't accurate.
1: Well, and don't you think that's because so so many of these girls and women that this happens to? You were 12 years old; and you were a, a child, and that's a lot of people are scared. Even adults are scared to come forward and to report their rapes and their sexual assaults.
2: Yeah, it's very scary.
1: What do you hear from your your friends? You're now 21 years old. What do you hear from your friends about this, and how how they're thinking about? you know, using your stories and how powerful powerful they are now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned. And this is an issue that so many women in the U.S. are dealing with now.
2: Um, I've gotten a lot of support from, you know, my inner circle, of course. Um, they knew about the abuse um long time ago. Whenever it all first came out, they were right by my side through everything. And I've done... Throughout the ad going as big as it did, I have gained so many more people and so much more support and we're all in this together.
1: Yeah. We heard from Governor Bashir this week after he won and he talked about it's people like you, not him. He said it's people like you and he cited your name who will lead to that change. He said he doesn't think that you are done either, that you'll continue to speak up for people who feel like they don't have a voice Do you you plan to do that in 2024 and just even beyond that?
2: Yeah, so that's always been a really big goal of mine is to be able to speak out and allow a helping hand to girls that I relate so much to. Because when I was that little girl, you know, I was just looking for somebody to help me, like somebody to help me find my strength, my voice. And knowing that I'm moving into that direction, I'm definitely not going to slow down now.
1: If any of those little girls were watching your interview right now, what would you say to them?
2: I just want them to know that they're not alone and they never would be alone. And to keep digging for your voice, find your strength. And there's power in women sticking together. So we just need to stick together.
1: Hadley. I'm just blown away by your composure and your grace and your ability to to come out and speak about this. I know a lot of other people are as well. and I just wanna thank you again for being willing to come on here and talk about it with us. Well, thank you. Hadley Duvall, thank you so much. Up next, here in New York, the mayor of New York has just had his phone seized by the FBI. It is a dramatic escalation of an ongoing criminal investigation tied to his campaign Also, we are tracking new major military action in Gaza. What Israeli forces are targeting tonight is there could be a breakthrough potentially in the hostage negotiations. That's next.
0: Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project,
1: Stunning new details
0: tonight into the FBI's seizure
1: of New York City Mayor Eric Adams's electronic devices, all part of a federal probe into whether his 2021 campaign received illegal donations from the Turkish government. Sources telling CNN that FBI agents approached the mayor on the street Monday night this week, telling his security detail to step aside. The agents then climbed into the mayor's waiting SUV, Or they showed him they had a warrant for his phones, his devices. He handed over two iPhones and an iPad, possibly more upon returning home. They were reportedly, according to The New York Times, later returned to him. This seizure, though, marks a dramatic escalation of a federal probe into Adams' campaign just days after the FBI raided the home of his chief fundraiser. I should be clear, Adams has not been accused of any wrongdoing tonight, and he denies that he'll be responsible for any. But he has come under increasing scrutiny as prosecutors are zeroing in on his inner circle. This is what he told reporters on Wednesday.
3: If uh, the federal government came up with charges against you, or local prosecutors' charges against you, would you also be surprised?
4: <laughs> well, i got to be surprised if I'm the one that's leading the cry of following the law.
1: Tonight, the mayor is telling CNN in a statement, quote, As a former member of law enforcement, I expect all members of my staff to follow the law and fully cooperate with any sort of investigation. And I will continue to do exactly that. I have nothing to hide. Joining me now is Cyrus Vance Jr., the former Manhattan District Attorney. Thank you so much, Cyrus for being here. I mean, you're the perfect person to talk about this with. What kind of evidence did they need to get a warrant to get the mayor of New York's phones and his iPad? Good
3: evening, Caitlin. In order to get a search warrant, whether it was for the materials taken from the home of his uh, campaign finance uh, fundraiser Mm -hmm. or the mayor's cell phones and iPad, the government had to demonstrate in a written document called an affidavit uh, that there was probable cause to believe that a crime was committed and that evidence of that crime would be either in Ms. Sugg's house or wherever the warrant was executed, or in the mayor's electronic uh, phone and and iPad. Now, uh, that doesn't mean that the mayor uh, has done anything wrong, Uh, but that's the standard that the court will consider before it grants a search warrant and authorizes, in this case, the federal government to enter uh, the premises of the fundraiser, or to seize, copy, uh, and take information from the mayor's personal electronic devices.
1: Yeah, and I'm glad you made that point, you know, just because they were able to obtain a search warrant doesn't mean that he has done anything. There's a lot we still don't know, but what are they looking for, do you think, on these devices?
3: Well, as I understand from reading the news, which is obviously, uh, is not a full complete picture, uh, they, It would appear, according to the news, that they are looking for information related to the uh, fundraising in the Mayor's 2021 campaign. Uh, I think you've read, as I've read, that there are uh, allegations that uh, non-Americans who were not eligible to donate use straw party donors, that is individuals who were citizens of the United States, uh, to make contributions to the campaign and presumably reimbursed those. Uh, those American citizens for making uh, for making those contributions. Uh, the federal laws are different than the state laws, mm-hmm. but the federal laws will probably be focused on mail fraud, wire fraud, uh, violations of, uh, of of campaign of campaign laws, and the like.
1: And I think something that's important here is this is not the first time that that Mayor Adams or people in his orbit, have been under the scrutiny of law enforcement. He was actually on this show a few months ago, and we talked about an investigation being done by your former office, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. They had just indicted six people, including a New York police uh, former New York Police Department officer, in this straw donor scheme to his 2021 campaign. I want you to listen to what he told me about those allegations at the time. Were you aware of any of that, or what's your response to those charges?
4: No, not aware at all. And, you know, I follow one rule, follow the rules. Uh, And uh, the district attorney is conducting his investigation. He did so, and it was clear that uh, our campaign had uh, no uh, participation in that. And it's just an unfortunate situation, but uh, I have a lot of faith in the DA's office, DA Braggs.
1: Given what we know, and I should note it's not everything, do you think that Mayor Adams should be concerned tonight?
3: Well, I think Mayor Adams is probably concerned for understandable reasons. First, first and foremost, he's the mayor of the city of New York. Uh, this is a, a distraction uh, from him and from the citizenry. Uh, I take him at his word as, a, as, we think, as I think we must. He's a former law enforcement officer. Uh, he has indicated that it was his direction to make sure that uh, the systems that monitored campaign contributions, which every campaign has or should have, were operating. Um, but it is, it is, of course, a, uh, a dramatic fact that um, the federal government has gone to court to get a search warrant to allege the level of proof that i described to you that there's evidence of a crime uh, and that a crime has been committed and that the, the, the devices the mayor possessed may have evidence of that uh, on them as well uh, something that is a it is a uh, sobering uh, event. he has excellent counsel boyd johnson uh, i think boyd has immediately gone out to make sure that the public knows that the mayor is cooperating. But there's so much that we don't know, uh, much, uh, much of which we'd be speculating if we were trying to fill in, fill in the lines at this point.
1: Yeah, so we will not speculate. Cyrus Vance, as always, thank you very much. Thank you, Caitlin. Good night. Ahead, there's a new bombardment in Gaza tonight as Israeli forces say that they are operating in what they call, quote, any arena that threatens the state of Israel. This comes as the Biden administration has now given one of its most direct condemnations yet of that growing civilian death toll. The latest ahead. Israel is intensifying its military operation in northern Gaza with heavy bombardment and flares tonight. We saw a notable shift in language from the Secretary of State Antony Blinken today on the evolving situation. One of his most direct condemnations yet of the growing civilian death toll that we're seeing in Gaza
4: much more needs to be done uh, to protect civilians and uh, to make sure that humanitarian assistance reaches them. Far too many Palestinians have been killed. Far too many have suffered uh, these past weeks.
1: Those comments are coming as CNN is learning that the administration has gotten stark warnings from American diplomats stationed across the Middle East that the U.S. could be losing support with Arab countries for a generation because of its strong backing of Israel. We've learned now today that Israel believes around 1,200 people were killed during those brutal October 7th attacks. That's a change from what we previously thought was 1,400. Israel, not explaining the revised number in full, of course, still questions about that. But joining me tonight is Dan Sinor, a foreign policy advisor under former President George W. Bush, A former president and former presidential candidate, Mitt Romney. He's also the co-author of the new and timely book, *The Genius of Israel: The Surprising Resilience of a Divided Nation in a Turbulent World*. Dan, I'm so glad to have you back here tonight, and I want to talk about the book um, a lot. But those comments from Secretary Blinken—do you think that shift in language from the US leads to a shift in policy in Israel?
5: Probably not. I think what Secretary Blinken is dealing with is he's bouncing around, if you've seen him in recent weeks, bouncing around from Arab capital to Arab capital. And I think he's hearing two things in many of those capitals, at least according to folks I've spoken to, who are familiar with some of the conversations. On the one hand, they say the fighting needs to end soon. These images all over the pan-Arab media of Palestinians getting killed is a problem but not before Israel finishes off Hamas. Make sure Israel finishes off Hamas, because to many of these countries, particularly in the Sunni Gulf, they want Hamas wiped out. Hamas is a huge headache for many of these Arab countries, not as much as it is for Israel, but it's still a headache. They want Hamas wiped out, the images are a problem, and so they want the, they want Israel to, they want the United States to put some pressure on Israel. I don't think it'll have enormous effect. Israel has agreed to these pauses. The tension for Israel is if it, the more it is rushed, the more it's, you know, finish it up, finish it up, finish it up, that's typically when they have to operate more indiscriminately. If they're given time and space, they can be a little more targeted, a little more focused, and I think you keep the casualties down.
1: But for those countries that want Israel to complete its mission and do so sooner rather than later, I mean, Israel's objective here is to not just diminish Hamas— but to eliminate Hamas, yeah. is that even doable?
5: Yeah, so you're exactly right. They, Israel does not intend to return to the status quo. It's not interested in, interest in establishing a deterrent. It is removing Hamas's military capabilities. They have a lot of infrastructure. We, we think of Hamas as like a ragtag militia. What we saw on October 7th, and you saw it firsthand when you toured what the damage they had done,
3: mm-hmm.
5: it's like a real military operation now, real training, real log- logistics, real fundraising, real weapons supported and organized by Iran. and so. They can get rid of a lot of that, if not all that infrastructure, and they can kill or arrest all the senior commanders and everyone who was involved in October 7th. I mean, based on the AI technology they have, they've identified most of the Hamas operatives and commandos that were involved in October 7th. So they can kill or capture all of those people, or most of them, and wipe out their infrastructure, and you don't have a Hamas threat in Gaza.
1: So you've written this book, The Genius of Israel— obviously you wrote it before what happened on October 7th, but I mean, it's all the more timely now. And I wonder how, you know, when you're looking at the book and it talks about Israeli society, the Israeli military and how that's such a centerpiece in that, how do you think about the book differently and the role of that, you know, the military in that sense before what happened on October 7th and now?
5: Yeah, it's, um, so we, The military, the role the military plays in Israel, I think it serves three very important purposes. Because it's compulsory service, so almost most Israelis serve, not all, but most, increasingly more, but most Israelis serve. And it means that young Israelis at a formative period of their lives, 18, 19, 20, 21, unless they go on to serve in the officer corps or in an elite unit, they develop tremendous skills. That's why so many of these young people coming out of these, you know, sophisticated units, these impressive tech units, these elite commando units, wind up running Israeli startups because they develop all these leadership and management skills. But they also do accomplish two other things. One is they become part. They have this whole kind of communal group mindset. The whole culture in Israel is about we, not me. It's it's when you're when you're applying to college in the United States, it's all about your own individual excellence, mm-hmm. right? Your grades, your test scores. You know, your SATs, you, 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 you. It's all about how you perform. If you want to get into the best units in the IDF, it's the, your individual excellence matters, your own performance, but also how you work in a team, in a group, in a unit. The best people won't get into the best units if they can't work in a team. And so the incentives in Israel for young people are all about communal. It's all about how to work on a team, and it shapes the whole culture. And the third piece here is... As divisive as Israel gets, and remember, on, on October 6th, Israel was pretty divided before yeah. this war. I mean, when, when we had been talking about Israel in 20, earlier in 2023, it was deeply divided over judicial reform and other political issues. As divided as it gets, Israelis tend to not look at each other as the other. Because in the hull of a tank, right, and you see these images right now when Israel's going into Gaza, in the hull of the tank, I've seen these images on like a Friday night where these soldiers are celebrating Shabbat, the Sabbath together, in a tank. You look around the tank. There's a secular Israeli with, you know, ponytail and tattoos. And there's a very religious Israeli. And there's an Israeli who has Sephardic roots from, like, Yemen or or Iraq. or And then you have another Israeli who's from, like, has roots in Eastern Europe or the United States. You have a son of a cab driver, a son of a billionaire. And they are, they're all forced to be together. We don't have systems in this country that force us to all be together from all walks of life. And because reserve duty goes well into Israelis into their 40s. Mm-hmm. They maintain these relationships throughout their adult life. And so I just think, as divi- I, we felt before October 7th, we, obviously when we're writing this book, Israel looks really divided right now. You ain't seen nothing. This country's capacity to come together because of this, these societal shock absorbers it has built into the society, and, and for the country to stay together and not kind of have these cold civil wars is unique in the world. We wrote the book because we wanted the US and other Western countries that are so divided. And, and somewhat of decline to look at Israel and see what, what lessons there are. Now we're seeing it yeah. in, in Israel and Israeli society post-October 7th.
1: And also just thinking of the reservists who who were living in other countries and went back. The book is very timely, it's The Genius of Israel. It's a great, compelling read. Uh, I encourage everyone to read it. Thank, Thank you, you for Thanks joining Kimberly. us to talk about
0: Appreciate it. Appreciate
1: Coming up, 20 years ago, the governor of New Jersey he stood next to his wife, he announced that he was gay and that he had had an affair with a man. Today, Jim McGreevy is using that moment to announce what he hopes will be his political comeback. My truth
4: is that I am a gay American. I engaged in an adult consensual affair. It was wrong, it was foolish, it was inexcusable. I accept
1: total. And Jim McGreevy joins me next.
2: From executive producers Park chan and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max.
1: A political comeback may be in the works for former New Jersey Governor Jim McGreevy. In 2004, he became the first out gay governor in U.S. history. Moments later, he resigned.
4: And so my truth is that I am a gay American. Shamefully, I engaged in an adult consensual affair with another man. I have decided the right course of action is to resign.
1: As McGreevy announced that resignation, he admitted to having an affair with a man who is also an employee of his, while standing next to his then wife. Nearly two decades after that, McGreevy is seeking office again.
4: I'm imperfect and I'll always be imperfect. It's important to take accountability, to do the next right thing. It was painful, but I would not have traded anything that I've experienced. It's made me a better person more compassionate.
1: And Jim McGreevy joins me now. I'm so glad that you're here. Tell me why you want a second chance from voters 20 years later.
4: Uh, Caitlin, part of it is I've had, I'm blessed to have the experience both inside government in terms of Mayor of Woodbridge and, you know, the executive branch, and then also outside government. For the past decade, I've had the pleasure of working with people coming back from prison and jail and addiction treatment and veterans. And as I shared, one out of every three veterans is court involved, and helping them put back their lives and candidly understanding the, the the challenges of doing that. And so, part of what I understand, if it's it's if it's that tough for me, how about for the individuals that don't have someone in their corner advocating? And you know, Jersey City is where my grandparents came from Ireland, and my grandfather was a beat cop, and. And my parents grew up, and it's a great city, but it's a city at the crossroads. And it's a city that's becoming increasingly not affordable. And so what I'd like to see is, you know, whether it's controlling property taxes, whether it's affordable housing, grappling with some of the issues of traffic congestion, improve the quality of our schools, those are issues that are all important for working families.
1: Yeah, you've been doing a lot of work over the last two decades with people who were incarcerated, yeah. who, who just don't have the resources and, and- Whatnot, and you know how have those last twenty years shaped how you'd be different if you were elected?
4: It's it's you know I never thought I would say this, but it was a blessing to have traveled the road I traveled because I'm a very different. You know, I was the young man in the hurry, the quintessential young Paul as as peaceful as that may be. And and now I I just sort of and I still take a caseload, so we have we're blessed to have twenty thousand folks enrolled in the New Jersey Reentry Corporation, but I still take a hands on caseload, so I, I know what it's like for somebody grappling with mental health or addiction or homelessness. In fact Tonight, before I came here, a young man told me that he and his wife and his young infant child is about to be evicted. Mm-hmm. And he's like, Jim, what can I do? And I'm like, all right, I'll call you tomorrow. I, I know I can get your wife and your daughter into, into a place in Catholic Charities, but I'm not sure about you. And he's like, take care of them. So it's so much more real and tangible. And it's so it's, it's not as if it's about moving bureaucracies. It's being very it, it's very real and very authentic.
1: Yeah. And when you resigned, you know, you cited the fact that you were a gay man. That was obviously not the only thing that was in pl- in, at play there. It was the person that you had an affair with, who I should note disputes yeah. that, that he was your top Homeland Security advisor. Well, he wasn't a top. He, he
4: was a counselor. Yeah, he, he, he was a was Homeland Security advisor. Yeah. He was
1: unqualified for the job, it didn't have the qualifications, couldn't get a security clearance. So if voters who you know have long memories in New Jersey, of course, as you know. <laughs> it's Jersey. If, if they're looking at that, can they trust you now?
4: Yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, for 10 years as mayor of Woodbridge, I'd I, I like to think I, I worked very hard and very smart. I was a good mayor, controlled property taxes, made sure that affordable and, and good schools. Um, and I was grappling with, I was. Grappling with my sexuality. I thought I was doing the right thing. And then uh, you meet this person. And so it's just, yeah, no, I, I think as governor, we did a lot of good things. We did Easy Pass, uh, motor vehicle reform, the Highland drinking water, uh, third grade childhood literacy. So I think we did good things. But obviously what I did was terribly wrong. And I owned it. I owned it. And, you know, people said, well, you shouldn't have resigned. No, yes, I should resign. It was the first time, you know, is I'd spent my whole life working for this and I said, this is the right decision and I'm going to do it for the right reasons.
1: You know what I'm fascinated by watching that video is just thinking that's never something that would, would happen in that sense with the context of you being gay oh, now today. in 2020. Yeah. How, how do you think about how... <laughs> the US electorate thinks of it. I mean the fact that what the Supreme Court decision, Congress passed a yeah. law protecting same-sex rights last year.
4: Yeah, well I one I just want to make sure that people know that I understand that what I did wrong. I, I broke the vows of matrimony. And you know what, on a personal level, my 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 daughter's mother showed up for the announcement the other day, which I was on a touch on a human level. But you know, it's it's miraculous, scale that I think America, like I think of young Jim McGreevey, like hiding the fact or thinking what i was doing to hide my sexuality was the right thing um and now today it's like i'm sort of put off by young people it's like no big deal um recently my friend christian who runs executive director of gordon state equality had had a dinner dance and i went there and it was just it was, it was unfathomable to me yeah
1: jim mcgreevy uh, it's a fascinating return to politics Grateful that you came on to talk about it All
4: right. Thanks so much for your time.
1: Thank you. Up next, a deep dive on election lies here in the U.S. with a very familiar face that you know well. That's just in a moment. Election offices in six states are now crime scenes tonight as the FBI is investigating after more than a dozen suspicious letters were sent to public officials. At least one of them contained traces of fentanyl. Threats against the men and women who do the work of counting votes are not new, but instead have actually been on the rise for the last three years, stoked in part by former President Donald Trump. In his new book, Network of Lies, the former CNN anchor Brian Stelter examines the role that Fox News played in amplifying falsehoods about U.S. elections. He writes that the role is what led one of Rupert Murdoch's children, James, and his wife Catherine to see the network as, quote, a growing threat to pluralistic democracy. Brian Stelzer is here with me now for his first interview back at CNN. Welcome back, Brian. It's How good are you? to be here. Has
6: anything happened since I've been gone? No,
1: it feels totally normal, right? Well,
6: one great thing happened. This show. Thank you. I do watch every night. I'm kind of a junkie.
1: Your show is one of the first ones I was ever on at CNN. So That's true. I love you. that. I, I love that. Loved working with you. Uh, this book <laughs> is really important. And tying it back to what we've seen happening today. You know, we, I spoke to one of these election workers who got one of these letters today. And I think what's important about it is just how much of this, you know, these threats against election workers were stoked and exacerbated by the former president when he was in office and when he lost the 2020 election.
6: Right, because this didn't come out of nowhere. The big lie didn't come out of nowhere. It was made to happen. It was made to exist. And what I realized when I was reconstructing the 2020 period for this book is that it happened very, very specifically the weekend that President Biden was named president-elect. Mm-hmm. Remember that Saturday morning, yep. you know, when, when the projections were made? Well, 24 hours later on Sunday morning, it was Fox's Maria Bartiromo and Trump friend Sidney Powell who seeded the story about Dominion that basically said to Trump's audience, there's a villain of this story. It's a company called Dominion. They somehow tricked you. They stole the election. And Trump is the victim. And that story, they started to tell that story on a Sunday, and by the following Thursday, Trump started repeating it as well. And you've so it been wasn't Trump, it was Fox that started it.
1: I mean, and look at how we're still talking about this almost at the next election. You've been interviewing right. the Domin- Dominion lawyers. I assume they're pretty busy. And
6: they're still busy because they still have other cases against Newsmax and Powell and Rudy Giuliani. And they're going to be litigating these cases well through 2024. That's one of the crazy things about situation. the situation. The 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 accountability for these election lies is playing out mostly in the courts. You cover it every day, the January 6th cases, the Trump trials, and these civil actions against Fox and Newsmax.
1: And you talk about Trump stoking this, but you know, it wasn't just, he had a platform to stoke it as well by using Fox News to push these election lies. And there's a quote in your book where you talk about how during the Trump years, Tucker Carlson's show was skyrocketing. You say civility was plummeting, Americans more and more defining themselves by who or what they opposed, detested, denigrated. Instances of political violence spiked and so did threats to media outlets.
6: Right, and I think that's of a piece with what you're covering today about these suspicious letters. There is a generalized sense of negative partisanship, some of which just happens on social media, arguments that we just have at the bar, but then it spreads out and it actually leads to these acts of violence, these acts of incitement. And that has to be denounced regardless of partisanship. This is fundamentally not a partisan issue. And I know lots of Republicans, lots of Democrats agree on that. However, we still see almost every day Trump engaging in these delusions about the last election as he seeks the the election once again. Uh, It is an incredibly challenging environment for the news media to cover.
1: And what fascinated me was how you tied it to what is happening right now and what we saw, you know, on Monday and what we're seeing potentially next March and next May Trump in court, all these trials that he's facing. Right. And how you said, you know, all the indictments that he's facing related in one way or another to misguided advice. Yeah misinformation, and the mendacity of the right-wing media machine.
6: That's what stood out to me when I went through all those Dominion filings. Basically, I felt like I had to write this book because all of the revelations that Dominion came up with through the court process, where they were reading Tyra Carlson's emails, they were reading Rupert Murdoch's texts, I realized there's a story here that needs to be pieced together to explain how this happened. It was a choice, it was choices people made. Rupert Murdoch chose to sit back and act like a bystander instead of leading and actually managing his company. That meant that Sean Hannity, the likes of Sean Hannity, were actually in charge and they were the ones that were spreading misinformation. Now, I would argue that misinformation has hurt Trump. It has hurt the Republican Party. It has hurt them at the ballot box in elections. They become so misled by their echo chamber, and that's a warning not just for Republicans or for or for MAGA believers, it's also a warning for Democrats, for everybody, not to get too caught up in an echo chamber because of the consequences that can be so dire.
1: Did you ever think that you would write a book about Fox again?
6: I did not, but I only did it because now these sources are on the record. I've always dealt with anonymous sources, people talking from the inside because they couldn't put their name there to it. They
1: were still real sources. Exactly. They just couldn't put their name they just on couldn't it. Put
6: their name up. But now you have Rupert Murdoch's emails. You actually hear from him in his own words. He was saying this was terrible stuff, damaging everybody, but he wasn't actually taking action to stop it. And then he gets deposed earlier this year by Dominion's lawyers, and he contradicts himself, and he backtracks, and he acted more like a passenger in the car than the driver. For me, it's a story about a lack of leadership. But you mentioned James Murdoch. He's one of Rupert Murdoch's sons. James Murdoch is on the outside, holding fundraisers for Biden, plotting a takeover of Fox News in the future. This could go in many different directions. And I think the right-wing media machine could evolve in many different ways in the years to come.
1: Well, and Rupert Murdoch, he's stepping down next week from this this pivotal role that he's had for so long. How different does his media empire, not just Fox, but everything, look after that?
6: I think he looks diminished. And frankly, some of his own advisors have admitted that to me, that he's he's not the swashbuckling media titan that he was. It's the likes of Apple and Netflix that now control the media environment. And the likes of Tucker Carlson, who are now on the outside, plotting their own independent media outlets. It's almost as if the energy has moved away from him. Although I think it's important to note, Fox is still the beating heart of the GOP. And that's where, for better and for worse, the narratives are still set.
1: Yeah, I mean, what you see Trump now, I mean, he went from being someone who... I believe you had a quote that he was ninety percent. He
6: thought not. Rupert Murdoch and Fox were yeah, ninety That's what Trump 90% said. You're ninety percent good. I need you to be a hundred percent good.
1: Now I think he'd probably argue they're twenty five percent good. I don't. He doesn't see it at all like that anymore. In a primary,
6: he would argue that. But come general election, they'll be in Trump's corner.
1: Brian Stelter, the book is Network of Lies. It's great to have you back here on CNN. Great to be here. Thank you. I know you. the viewers are glad to see you. <laughs> Up next, how George Clooney is helping veterans on this Veterans Day. That's after a quick break. It is Veterans Day tomorrow, and there are more than 18 million veterans living here in the U.S. that deserve recognition for their service to this country. Amid all the concerns about political division, wars being fought around the globe, and the challenges this this world faces, and of course we know there are many, one veteran himself, former President George W. Bush, delivered this message on Veterans Day.
3: Stay positive because... Uh... If you study world history or U.S. history, we go through cycles of, of being down. And yet, uh, Americans ought to realize how blessed we are to live in this country. And yeah, the, gr- the images are grim. And yes, there's violence. But ultimately, love overcomes hate.
1: And for this Veterans Day, I am thrilled to again be a part of an auction for the amazing organization Homes for Our Troops. It's championed and co hosted by our friend Jake Tapper. The proceeds of this auction go to Homes for Our Troop, which builds and donates custom homes for veterans. Celebrities like George Clooney and Mindy Kaling have some amazing offers. There's also one where you can Zoom with me. The bidding is open right now. You can check it out, you can bid, you can just donate, period, to Homes for Our Troops. You can go to ebay.com slash i I'll also be sure to tweet the link as well. Thank you so much for any of you who do donate and take the time for Homes for Our Troops, a worthy organization. I want to thank you all for joining us this night and every night this week. CNN News Night with Abby Phillips starts right now.
6: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.